So how many of you know the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? There? Yes. I think Stephanie memorized this book before Lily was born, and I might have glanced at a page or two myself. This book has long been the book for new parents. <laughs> its success is, is staggering. Listen to this. Listen to these, uh, these facts. It was published in 1984, and now it's in its fifth edition, and it still continues to top the New York Times bestseller list, okay? Now, 18 and a half million copies in print, and it's read by 93% of women who read a pregnancy book. USA Today named it one of the most influential books of the last 25 years. For all these reasons, some have called it the Bible of American Pregnancy. Now, I'm sure there are several reasons for its success, but I just want to focus on one. I think this book has become so successful for this reason. Most of us like to know what we're getting into. So when we find out we're pregnant and after the initial excitement, we think, oh, crap, shoot, I have no idea what I'm doing. We like to know what we're getting into, right? You feel more comfortable, more at ease if you know what to expect when you're expecting. In our scripture text for today, the disciples of John the Baptist could have used a what to expect manual of their own. What to expect when you're expecting the Messiah. If only they would have had such a manual, they could have saved face and avoided an awkward encounter with Jesus. It's not that they didn't have any expectations, it's just they had the wrong ones. Now remember, before we read our text, that the word Messiah means the anointed one. But by the time the first century rolled around, the word had picked up all sorts of other meanings. The word didn't just mean any anointed one, like a king or a priest. It meant the anointed one, the king, the everlasting priest the one to come who would make all things right. Now turn to your, uh, your sermon notes page in the bulletin, if you're not already looking at it, would you? These are to, to help guide us along our, um, both, both during the sermon and also afterwards to, to kind of help keep track of some of the things that were, were said. Now under that first bolded item under key context, first century expectations of the Messiah— by the time of Jesus, there were common, these were common expectations of the Messiah. He would be the one who would save Israel, and that was pretty much agreed upon by first century Jews. And many assumed this meant the Messiah would overthrow Roman rule, defeating those Gentiles once and for all. And many also expected the Messiah to be a figure of, of worldly power, perhaps coming from a wealthy, noble family. After all, he was supposed to be a descendant of David. And he would also be, get this, he would also be a bringer of judgment on God's enemies. And by the way, they thought they were pretty sure who God's enemies were. Again, those wicked Gentiles. Those non-Jews, those religious outsiders, those people. The Messiah, some thought, would surely protect his own from those people. That's a common expectation. One last expectation deserves mentioning. Almost all Jews were fairly certain in the first century that when the Messiah came, it meant the end of the world as we know it. 
the final reign of God, they believed, would then come with peace and justice, and there would be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. That's what they expected to happen when the true Messiah came. Are you beginning to see the picture, maybe, of the, of the Messiah that, that many had during Jesus' day? So when Jesus steps onto the stage of history, faithful Jews were obviously wondering, could this be the one? Could this be the long-awaited Messiah foretold in the prophets? Could this be the one who will save us at last? This question is especially on the fr- on front of the disciples of John, th- their minds, because John's job was what? It was to prepare the way for the one. He was the prophetic precursor to the one. So is Jesus the one or not? Listen to how this question gets asked in our text, and then pay very close attention to Jesus' response. Before we read, let us pray. O Lord, teach us what to expect when we're expecting God to show up in our lives. Save us, Lord, even from our own ignorance and misconceptions about you. Enlighten us right now through your very word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord. John's disciples informed him about all these things, that is, all the things we read about last week. And John called two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord. They were to ask him, are you the one who is coming or should we expect someone else? When they reached Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you. He asks, are you the one who is coming or should we expect someone else? Right then, Jesus healed many of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to a number of blind people. Then he replied to John's disciples, go, report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. After John's messengers had left, John spoke to the crowd. Jesus spoke to the crowds about John. What, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a stalk blowing in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed up in refined clothes? Look, those who dress in fashionable clothes and live in luxury, they're in the royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He is the one of whom it's written, Look, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you that no greater human being ever born has ever been born than John. Yet whoever is least in God's kingdom is greater than he. Everyone who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged God's justice because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the legal experts rejected God's will for themselves because they hadn't been baptized by John. To what then will I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked? What are are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song and you didn't cry. 
John the Baptist came, neither eating nor bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon? <laughs> Yet the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved to be right by all her descendants. This is the word of the Lord. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? That's the focal point of the message for today. John's disciples ask Jesus this question, and Luke repeats the question verbatim to ensure we don't miss it as readers. Perhaps you've asked this question in your own way. Jesus, are you the one, or should I keep shopping around? Are you the one who can save my messed up marriage? Are you the one who can give me the power to kick this self-destructive habit? Are you the one, Jesus, who can give my wandering life meaning and purpose? Are you the one who can get me through such heavy despair and grief? Are you the one who can give me a friend? Are you the one, Jesus, who can show me God because I feel so far from him? Tell me, Jesus, are you the one or should I look somewhere else? John sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one. Whenever I read this text, I can't help but think of the movie The Matrix. Do you know this movie? Oh, come on, it's not even up there. Ah, there we are. You know this movie? Great movie. It's one of my favorites, sci-fi thriller. There's a scene when everyone is talking about whether Neo might be the one. The one to liberate them from evil oppression. The one it was written about in the Oracle. If you are the one, Tank says, it's a very exciting time. John and his disciples were also looking for the one. Waiting for the one. On tiptoe alert for the one. The one who would save Israel. The one who had been promised. The one who would overthrow opposition. So from his jail cell, John's in his jail cell, by the way, he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus straight up, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? I can almost hear him add, if you are the one, it's a very exciting time. Now before we jump to Jesus' answer, there's one more question to linger over. Now, this question comes not uh, specifically in our text, but it comes from reading the Gospel of Luke as a whole. Maybe this question popped into your mind as we read the passage. As we read Luke in context, the question arises, why would John the Baptist doubt whether Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah? If you remember the earlier stories of John, this seems a bit strange. After all, John was a distant relative of Jesus. You remember the stories from Christmas time, right? Before the boys were born, their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, met together and exchanged miraculous stories of what God promised to do through their sons. Then, not that long ago, probably less than a year ago, John was in the desert stirring up a Jewish revival. Droves of people crowded around him. In that moment... John said this about the Messiah. I baptize with water those of you who have changed your hearts and lives. The one who is coming after me is stronger than me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And as he's saying this, Jesus, out of the blue, arrives on the scene and asks to be baptized by John. When this happens, John seems pretty sure that Jesus is the one. Take a look at Luke 3. So John tries to stop him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? But Jesus insists, and John baptizes him, and the heavens split open, and the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And there was a voice from heaven saying, You are my son, the beloved, in you I am well pleased. Friends, it was a very exciting time. But after all this, John still sends a couple of his followers to Jesus just to confirm that he's really the one. Why would John have any doubts about this? (laughs) At this point in his life, After all he's been through, after hearing the stories of faith from his mom and from Aunt Mary, after baptizing Jesus and the signs that accompany it, after all this, why in the world would John have any doubts about Jesus' identity as the Messiah? Friends, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't make sense, does it? But if you think about it, The same thing happens over and over again in our own lives. We experience God. We experience God's presence in numerous ways throughout our lives. We hear the stories of faith from those who have gone before us. We've prayed and we've had prayers answered. And we've seen divine signs along the way. After all this, Doubt still finds a way to creep into our hearts and minds. Doubt, I think, is like a mouse, searching for any little hole, any crevice to sneak its little nose through and make its annoying presence known. It doesn't make sense, does it? How did that little mouse get in here? Seriously, I cocked everything. I, Dan, can you tell me how those mouses keep getting in there? I don't know. Doubt out, my friends, I think is like a mouse. It doesn't make sense that we would still fear death. After all we've been through, after all the testimonies to God's reality and steadfast love, but we do. It doesn't make sense that we'd question whether God can get us through this next thing, but we do. It doesn't make sense for us to worry and hurry and stress and busy ourselves with anxiety, but we do. So I don't know why John still has doubts about Jesus, and I don't know why we do too, but I do know this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor, and all because of Jesus. All because of Jesus. Look at me, Jesus is saying, in all your doubt and open your eyes. See what marvelous things transpire before you. Happy is anyone who takes no offense at me. I do have a couple guesses, though, for why John questions whether Jesus is really the one. One guess is that John read the prophets of the Old Testament in a certain way. These prophets, like Isaiah and Malachi, they spoke about characteristics of the one. They offered some sort of 
what to expect manual, what to watch for in the coming Messiah. And as John saw it, he expected the coming one to be a figure of power and a bringer of judgment, with an axe in one hand and a shovel in another. You remember his words from Luke 3, yeah? He would use the fire of God's judgment to do his winnowing work. He would oppose with force those who stood in the way of God's purposes. He would raise up an army and charge ahead as its mighty warrior. That's what the true Messiah would do when he came, or perhaps John thought. But this Jesus of Nazareth, so far, he had called a small ragtag group of people, most were poor farming folk with little influence in society. Sure, he taught with authority, but his teachings seemed more likely to put axes in his opponent's hands rather than in the hands of his followers. And the courage he instilled was not the courage to fight, but the courage to make peace, the courage to endure suffering, the courage even to love one's enemies. In fact, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek, for they are the ones aligned with God's purposes for the world. All of this, all of these things, perhaps cast enough of a shadow of doubt on John's mind about Jesus as Messiah. To quote scholar Joel Green, apparently John's interest in asking this question lies on the fault line between his eschatological expectations and the reality of Jesus' performance. What was expected in the end times of the one to come and what Jesus was doing and teaching. For all these reasons, John could not yet say without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the one. And for other reasons, neither can you or I say without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the one who can save our marriage. That Jesus is the one who gives purpose and power, who calms our hearts and gives us peace, who provides a friend, the one in whom our future is absolutely secure. The mouse of doubt has snuck its way into our minds, and so we wonder in our worst moments, if Jesus is truly the one, if Jesus truly discloses the nature of God and God's design for our lives. Even still, John trusts Jesus enough that he expects him to tell the truth. That's why he sends his disciples to ask him straight up. And even still, may we trust Jesus enough to get us through the long nights Even still, may we have the faith the size of a chia seed. And may we get on board with God's project. Even still, let us trust Jesus and look at him, even in our cynicism. So John sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? They want a simple answer. Jesus, circle yes or no. He takes another route. Instead of responding yes or no, he invites them to consider for themselves what they've experienced. Tell John what you hear and see. Thus far, what they've heard is Jesus' teaching on the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. 
And thus far, what they've seen is a demonstration of that kingdom, healing after healing, anchored in the astounding compassion of Jesus. And in case they weren't watching closely enough, he gives them the Cliff Notes version. I like how the old hymn sums it up. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. So John and other first century observers were expecting a certain kind of Savior, and we too are expecting a certain kind of Savior in our own day, are we not? Someone to protect us, from terrorists and criminals, someone to keep us out of harm's way and to certainly do the same for our children, someone to heal a divided nation, someone to solve the world's problems, be that hunger or cancer, war or the displacement it brings, someone to solve our personal problems, be that grief or loneliness, a chaotic schedule or chaotic emotions, confusion, What should we expect when we're expecting a Savior? Hold on to that question for the very end. Now what I find fascinating about John's expectations and Jesus' reality is that even though Jesus does not align entirely with John's expectations, he doesn't scrap his list altogether. Here's what I mean. John's list finds its source in Old Testament prophecy, right? The Messiah is the bringer of judgment, the powerful king, the overthrower of evil. And Jesus doesn't scrap this list. Instead, he fulfills the list, but in the most unexpected ways. Perhaps, just perhaps, Jesus is fulfilling your list in an unexpected way. As John expects, Jesus sifts the wheat from the chaff. But those who find themselves on the outside looking in are the legalistic religious leaders. And those on the inside turn out to be a Roman centurion and a bereaved widow, the religious outsider and the poorest of the poor. Thus, Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. As John expects, Jesus becomes a powerful king, But friends, it's an upside-down kingdom over which he reigns. That's why he rides into his kingdom on a dirty donkey instead of a royal horse. The king takes the place of his subjects, giving life by surrendering his own. As John expects, Jesus brings judgment. But friends, he does so first by bringing it upon himself for the sake of all. The cross of Christ is God's answer to the evil of the world. And to the real ways you and I perpetuate that evil. The judge becomes judged in our place so that we might become right in the eyes of God. And that stamp of forgiveness forever brands our identity. As John expects, Jesus overthrows the opposition for sure. But it's not just Rome he defeats. Instead, you know, He unseats the throne of death itself, 
deceit from which all tyranny gains its power. Therefore, when we lie on our deathbed, we have assurance that in body and soul we belong in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let me give you a list of what no one expected. No one expected a Messiah dead on a Roman cross. No one expected what came next, that dead man alive again in a burial garden. No one expected the resurrection of Jesus to usher in the new creation. And once risen, no one expected that king to patiently wait before bringing his kingdom in full. But he does wait. And in the meantime, he entrusts a very big mission of restoration to his faltering followers, followers like you and I. No one expected that either. Finally, no one expected that all flesh, Jews and Gentile, would see the salvation of God, that every knee would bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Except that brave prophet Isaiah, whom far too few took seriously. That's why Jesus is a scandal to so many. The Greek word used in verse 23 is the word scandalizo, from which we get our word scandal. And blessed is anyone who does not consider me a scandal, it could be translated. But Jesus is a scandal to so many like the Pharisees and the lawyers who, verse 30, say, rejected God's purpose for themselves. Jesus was a scandal to to them because he defies expectations. He turns everything on its heads. He is divergent. Another great movie. That's why so many took offense at Jesus in his own generation. To what then will I compare the people of this generation, Jesus says? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out the games, but I'm not going to play them. I'm not going to play the games that they want me to play. I'm not going to behave like they want me to behave. So Jesus rejects the conventions determined by the religious people of his day, and these folks, their passions and their anger become so inflamed that they crucify him for his differences. In our own generation, so many are also offended by Jesus. But the opposite happens. So many in our own day, I think, become indifferent to Jesus and unthinking, and they go along with life as if none of it ever happened in the first place. Forget the history. Forget the, the, the miracle of it all. It's as if it were all a big hoax and the two billion Christians the biggest fools. And even if it did happen, well, whatever. The scandal of Jesus and his upside-down ways are just too much for the people of our generation. And so Jesus says both to his passionate murderers and to his indifferent doubters, both to you and to me, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. To close, I want to return to that question I asked you to hold on to a while ago. Do you remember that question? What should you expect when expecting a Savior? Whatever it is you long to be saved from today, 
wherever you feel like you need God's rescue most, here's what to expect when you're expecting a Savior. Two things. You may want to write these down to reflect on later. The first is basic, but it still needs said. First, expect Jesus to actually rescue you. Expect Jesus to actually be your Savior in your real-life circumstances. Not just your Savior sometime down along in the future. Your Savior now. Your rescue now. Expect this. Ask God to give you the faith of a mustard seed. Faith that God can and will step into your life and do what he did in Luke 7. Expect Jesus to bring wisdom when you can't see the road ahead. Healing when you don't have the strength to keep on going. Cleansing when you've stumbled and you know it's your fault. Expect Jesus to speak to you when the conversation between you and him have grown quiet. Expect him to raise your dead life, both now and after your last breath, because God is the one who brings good news to all who are at the end of their ropes. Second thing to expect when you're expecting a Savior. Expect to change. (laughs) Expect to be rescued from yourself. Expect to be rescued from those parts of yourself that don't align with the principles of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. Those parts of you that are not how God made you to be. Expect to change your vision of the world so that it's oriented toward the kingdom of God. Here's the vision I'm talking about. As we read the Gospel of Luke, we get a clear picture of Jesus' manifestation of an upside-down kingdom. Manifesto of an upside-down kingdom. We see that God's love equals the reversal of our value systems. So expect to conform yourself to God's love. We see the principle of radical generosity. Expect to work that into your life if you're expecting a real Savior. We see the model of servant leadership. So expect to think differently about power and authority and adjust your actions accordingly. We see the call, the terribly difficult call, to peacemaking, to enemy love. Expect God to transform your heart toward outsiders if you're expecting Jesus as your Savior. We also see the habit of forgiveness. Expect to forgive as Christ forgave you. Finally, we see deep piety, deep devotion to God, but it's in a way that rejects all forms of religious hypocrisy. So expect liberation from your legalism and immersion into the joy of spiritual practices. Practices like prayer and reading scripture and community. Practices like fasting, like celebrating. Expect joy as these practices enable you to walk in the spirit of Jesus wherever you go. Expect these two things. Expect Jesus to actually rescue you where you are and expect to change. God is so good, my friends. God is our Savior. Amen.
In Jesus Christ, he saved the world. As we continue worshiping this God this morning, and as we move further along in our week, expect to be rescued and expect to be changed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I don't know what word you want to speak into each one of our lives, but you do. And so may you speak it, and may you continue to speak it, that we all might know the wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ. Amen.